Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interest, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Lori Adams-Brown. She is an international speaker, business executive, and podcaster. She speaks six different languages, has studied and worked internationally, including in disaster relief in the 2004 Indonesian tsunami. So Lori's got a lot of things going on in her life and a lot of good passions. So I'm excited to get to know her today. So thank you so much for being here, Lori. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about your story? Hi, it's so lovely to be here on this podcast today. Hello to all the listeners and thanks for listening wherever you are. I consider myself a citizen of the world. I am a U.S. citizen by birth, and my parents were both U.S. citizens, but I was raised in Venezuela in international school. So if you've ever known somebody who identifies as a third culture kid growing up, that would describe a lot of me. And it's a beautiful journey that I embrace, but some people find it very difficult to understand if they have lived in one place their whole life. And I often find that hard to understand. But the beauty of it all is we all come from different journeys, whether we've lived in a rice field our whole lives or whether we've flown on lots of planes. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities about ways to live this human life that I have found as a podcast host. So I, much like you, love to have people on my podcast to talk about their journey. So it's an honor to be here today, being able to speak about some of the things I've learned and experienced throughout my many years of life. Great. So can we start off with what it was like growing up in Venezuela, like not being born there and then what schooling was like? Sure. Yeah. Just love to talk about my years there. It's changed a lot. So I did grow up there in some of the really good years, I would say. Uh, The 80s and the early 90s were a pretty special time for me growing up there. I lived in a city called Valencia, which was just the absolute best. I had such a great growing up. I grew up in, you know, this tropical Caribbean nation, which was at that point considered a model democracy for South America. We had a pretty good life there. Um, Near the beach, we could spend 40 minutes on a Saturday, many Saturdays, we would go driving down the mountain into the Caribbean ocean and pick an island to go to by asking a boat to take us whichever island we chose. So it was pretty idyllic life in a lot of ways. My international school gave me friends and perspectives of people all over the world of different faith backgrounds and languages and foods. And just felt like I had a little microcosm of the world right among my friend group and on the sports teams I played on at school and the clubs I was involved in, spend the night in their homes. So just grew up with a lot of diversity in that environment. Also grew up bilingual Spanish-English because Venezuela is a Spanish-speaking country. And that was a real privilege and blessing in my life, which to this day, now that I live in California, circle around all these years later, get to use my Spanish where I live now, which is kind of fun. Um, But yeah, life started off for me pretty great in Venezuela, I must say. So obviously, you know, you just mentioned that in California, you can still use your Spanish. What other languages have you picked up? Yeah. So, I mean, in my international school, if you were fluent in Spanish, you could move on to French. So I was able to do that starting in sixth grade and studied that, you know, middle school and high school. My teacher was from Paris, wonderful woman. And then uh, 
of in college, I studied Arabic. I'm not fluent in either French or Arabic, but I did study them. And, and then I moved to Indonesia after my master's degree. So I lived in Indonesia 10 years and learned Indonesian fluently in order to work there. And then I lived in Singapore 10 years after that. And the indigenous language of Singapore is Malay. So I speak Malay as well. So what were the different cultures like living in Indonesia and Singapore for about a decade? Yeah, you know, 10 years of Indonesia was mostly in Sumatra and worked in a nonprofit and did some learning and development kind of roles to help people in with the we had a partnership with the Indonesian government to help the English teachers increase their level of English. So that was pretty exciting professionally, but also just life-wise, there was a civil war going on. (laughs) So whatever that looks like, if you can imagine, um, it was pretty intense uh, early on with the civil war. Although I lived in Banda Aceh and that part was a little more protected during the day. So the way the civil war worked during that time in the year 2000, especially basically the war in Banda Aceh would mostly happen at night. So they, but in the other villages around the area, it could happen any time of the day, but they would try to keep the fighting away mostly during the day. So people could go to the market and get their things done. But as soon as the sunset called a prayer, the, you would hear the call to prayer. Everybody knew go inside. The public transportation is going to stop. And wherever you are, you're going to be there till tomorrow morning. You shouldn't really go out. So that's sort of how that happened. We just kind of didn't do anything at night. Um, and then a uh, five years into my time working there, that's when the big Indonesian tsunami hit, um, 18 years ago. So that was a whole other ball game. Obviously it was the largest disaster of our generation and really intense. So my husband and I both were working in community development at that point and ended up doing disaster relief for, I would say a solid year and then kind of switched into community development, helping people rebuild their homes. And I became a, early on in the disaster relief phase, became a medical director for a local grassroots nonprofit and helped get medical professionals to come in as volunteers from different countries. And we set up makeshift medical clinics to help treat the wounded. And um, it was a very rewarding time, but a very intense time. So I also ended up doing a little bit of translation from English to Indonesian for a trauma counselor who came in. He had worked in the Columbine shooting in Colorado. And so he had a specialty with children and trauma and he was on the Colorado board or the system in the judicial system. When a child witnesses a murder, they would call him in. So he's a specialty with children and trauma. And he'd also worked in Russia in the situation where the Chechnyan rebels had gone in and shot up a school. And, and so he just had such fast experience. It was definitely something I'd never been a part of, but just translating for him, I really learned a lot about how everyone experiences trauma in the body and the brain by translating for him and, you know, just the way our bodies and our brains can start to heal when we can tell our story to somebody who listens and believes and people need to tell it over and over again because of the onion layers of how trauma works. And so people's brains and bodies can't process all of it in just one telling. And so just having, you know, opportunities to just sit and listen to people and their stories was one of the greatest honors of my life because it, it does bring people healing in that scenario and, and people living through that need hope. Um, and a year later on the anniversary of the tsunami, 
we noticed a lot of our friends um, and people we knew in the community, they just couldn't bathe that day. They couldn't be near water. And so I, I just remember how strange it sounded, but cause I hadn't gone through, I didn't experience the actual tsunami. We were at my parents' house in Thailand um, on the day for Christmas that year. Um, but came back within a couple of days and helped with the relief. So I didn't experience the actual tsunami, but knowing how the body keeps the score and you just, I've heard many stories about this with trauma and how your body just knows on that anniversary somehow. And it just shows you, um, what it's going through. It's very, the, the body, the brain, the soul are all just so connected. And so, yeah, it was just, I learned so much during that experience and how important it is for us as human beings that all around the world experience various forms of trauma, big or small, that are, there are similarities, even though our languages and religions may be different. You know, the Achenese, uh have a, a Sharia law in that province, Aceh province. So the whole 10 years of living and working there, I was, you know, living under those laws of wearing hijab and that type of thing in order to be respectful of their laws and their culture. But no matter how different it might be for a Westerner and an Easterner or somebody who's, you know, a Christian or a Muslim or whatever, that there's an experience in humanity that we experience trauma in pretty similar ways, whether you've been a Vietnam War vet or you've been abused as a child or various types of abuse that can cause PTSD and, and complex PTSD as well. I just learned a great deal. And I do not want to be a therapist. I learned that much, <laughs> but I learned how to just be a caring friend um, and, and help people just when they experience trauma to just be a good listener and hear their stories. And that was, um, something the Achenese taught me that I, I care very deeply about, and I hold very special in my heart, those stories of my friends. Yeah. And it's very important to make those connections and realize that. So what was it like then? Like you weren't there for the actual tsunami, but you could have been. So what was that kind of like reintegration process? Yeah, we had been living in the province um, of Aceh. And then a few months before the tsunami hit, the Indonesian government had pulled out all foreigners. There weren't many foreigners in the province at that point. But um, there was a situation in Aceh province where a German tourist, was in a tent on a beach camping and an Indonesian military without seeing who was in the tent called to them in Indonesian, but they didn't speak Indonesian. So they didn't come out and they shot and killed them without seeing them. So the Indonesian government was afraid that would get them in trouble with the world of how they were actually doing a lot of atrocities to the Achenese people. And there were a lot of mass graves that Amnesty International was uncovering and that type of thing. And so in order to kind of keep it hushed down to the world, they didn't want that really... <laughs> causing them trouble. So they just said, well, we'll solve that problem and no foreigners can be here. And also it meant nobody could tell the world what was happening anymore. So they were honestly just locking the whole story down in a lot of ways. So we lived right outside the province for those months leading up to the tsunami in a city called Maidan, which is the largest city in Sumatra. But there are about 500,000 Achenese who are living in Maidan and a lot of our community development work was working with some of the IDPs that were pouring into there and doing research and trying to figure out how to meet their needs and how we could be helpful. And so um, even though I wasn't living in Banda Aceh in the months prior, the house we would have been living in that we had moved out of, the wave of the tsunami came 
over that house rooftop and in that whole neighborhood. And we have friends that survived from that neighborhood by walking out over dead bodies for miles to get out. So I'm on a Sunday morning around 8 a.m. I'm pretty sure we would have been in bed and may not have survived. So it was a relief to know we weren't there. But at the same time, we went in and tried to find our friends. And fortunately, most of them survived and some very miraculous stories, like the 10% of their village that got out in the one car load with people hanging off the sides with the wave coming behind them, wild stuff like that. Uh, but there is one family in particular that was in sort of the ground zero part of Banda Aceh where waves came from both directions. It was the very kind of northern tip. And so that place was just completely leveled and there was no sign of any of them after that. So it was, it was really hard to walk through that with people. Um, I hope nobody ever has to experience anything like that. But if you have to experience anything even close, I hope that you have people around who will listen to your story and help you heal. Because it's not just the physical loss. It's just that um, the mental and spiritual and, and, and physical altogether of how your body doesn't feel safe um, for a while. And it takes sometimes years to kind of walk through that. So, um, yeah, it was a, one of those lessons, like I said, about humanity and how we're all the same, but also finding the unique differences of what was going on in that province and helping um, people to celebrate their culture coming out of it and, um, and be culturally appropriate in ways that we helped. There were NGOs from all around the world that came to help, and it had been a little just small area that nobody had done much in before. So we were some of the few foreigners who had really ever worked there. But once it happened and the world noticed and everybody wanted to come. So I was a liaison with the UN early on as one of the first, you know, only foreigners that could really speak into sort of like the culture and how to be appropriate. But you'd be surprised how in situations like that, people sometimes don't know the most basic of things. So there was all these donations, which are wonderful if you've been a part of anything like that. Donations just start pouring in and it's the coordination of that. It can be quite hectic. But people were donating from all around the world and then they were getting things like pork and beans, but like Muslims are halal and they don't eat pork. So we just had to kind of, I don't know, what are you going to do with those? And then people gave tents, which is very kind, but they were like cold weather tents for like you know, snow. And this is a very hot tropical island. So it was really hot inside those tents. So, you know, some of those things are just slightly off, but, um, having lived there and, and spoken the language for so long and very connected with people, uh, the work that I was involved in was a kind of a grassroots organization of Indonesians and helping to develop them as leaders and helping, you know, they can soar once, you know, they have a few resources and tools that, you know, maybe something you can help provide. But to this day, some of the people I worked with and kind of recruited onto the team I was leading and as in our, in our medical clinics and some of the w villages we were able to be impactful in are just really special because some of the people that I was able to lead on my team have gone on to do incredible things throughout other parts of Indonesia, up into Malaysia, and even have moved to other countries and so when you walk through something like disaster relief with people, it's a, it's a special kind of bond that you have. And so I definitely have those kind of relationships still to this day. And that's great to hear just how you were able to handle everything and how then you still have those connections. So what sort of things led you to the various places you've lived in? Yeah, I mean, I think 
part of it would be, I mentioned earlier that I definitely didn't grow up with ties to just one place. So I think the experience of growing up in a country that wasn't my passport country and having the experience as a young child of my parents leaving their country and going to another country. We lived in Costa Rica for one year before Venezuela, and I had an international school experience there too, and friends that I still know from that very early, like early elementary kind of time. But I think that that experience just meant I, the whole world was an option (laughs) for me. And I ended up majoring in college in sociology and Spanish. I was a double major. And then I went on to get a master's in intercultural studies. I've just always been fascinated by cultures and languages and the ways people live life. So coming out of grad school, really, I had been fascinated with Indonesia as a place and had been there a couple of times as a college student. And even in my master's degree, just had visited. So, you know, an opportunity came up to work there and I was excited to do it and left, you know, the 10 years there in Indonesia. For those who've lived in Southeast Asia, there's just, it's easy to travel throughout Southeast Asia. So Singapore is very close to Indonesia, close to Sumatra. And it's where a lot of people would go on a visa run or medical care is really good there. And so we had visited Singapore as a family quite a bit throughout our years in Indonesia. And so then a job opportunity to go to Singapore came up around the time we were um, feeling led to look for something else. And so that worked out for our family to move and live there for 10 years. And the Singapore years were really where my kids felt like they mostly grew up. So I moved to Singapore when my oldest was five and my twins were one and a half. And So living there 10 years was pretty much a lot of the significant growing up years. And it's a beautiful place. It's a wonderful place to live. It's the most religiously diverse nation in the world. So just had friends from all different ways of thinking and different types of food. And a million expats live there and work there, at least during that time. So if you've seen Crazy Rich Asians, like it tells you part of the story (laughs) of what it's like to live in Singapore. But, you know, obviously the food is, is a real draw. So. And so then what brought you back to the States? Yeah. So coming back to the States um, really wasn't like coming home, even though it was the passport country for me and my husband and all three of my kids. (laughs) So really we're all five third culture kids, which is nobody knows where they're from really. Um, But um, a job opportunity came up for both my husband and I to come here. And at the time we just both felt led to do it. It was just you know, some different circumstances were happening around that time. I don't know if you've ever had those times where you're like, something's next. And then it just kind of comes to you. So we weren't um, like going out and just like spending really a lot of time thinking about where to go as much as we were, we're both people of faith. And so spending a lot of time just praying. And we even spent some time fasting for about six weeks just to say, we want to be open to what, you know, God has next for us. And then this opportunity came up for both of us. And as we kind of prayed through it, it felt like this is really what we're supposed to do through some pretty unusual circumstances. So it was a bit hard on my kids. They love Singapore. They did not want to leave. But my kids were very sweet to say, if you feel like this is what we're supposed to do, as hard as it is to leave our friends and our way of life and our food and everything we've ever really known and loved, then, you know, we trust you. So that was a gift I didn't expect to get especially from my oldest who was going into 10th grade at the time. It felt kind of like a hard thing to move him. 
and then, you know, two who are in middle school, it's just, you know, your friends matter at those ages. So yeah, we moved here just in time to, uh, hit COVID. So <laughs> my kids may not forgive me for that part, <laughs> but we had no idea that was coming. So. Right. You could not have planned for that. No. So do you think you'll be in California for a long time or is there somewhere else that you might want to end up? We're here for now. My oldest just graduated from high school and he's starting college here in California. We're blessed to have great universities in this state. And so he's going to stick around, which is nice. I think we had always envisioned sending him from Singapore probably to the U.S. and not seeing him for months and months. But this is kind of a real blessing for all of us that he'll be nearby for the next little while. And we feel settled here. Our twins are going to start high school in a few days. And so, um, yeah, we, it's not that we want to be here probably forever and ever and ever, but we're here for now and we love it. And if you've been in the Bay area at all, it feels like the whole world lives here. So it's similar to Singapore in that way where, you know, I can get my arepas or cachapas from Venezuela and, you know, did that on Sunday at a restaurant that's a favorite in San Jose. And then my husband can get his Thai food and Indian food. And we all love all those foods mutually. So, um, and then we have a lot of Indonesian friends here. And then there's, this is where more Singaporeans live than anywhere else in the U S a lot of Singaporean friends. So all of our people and languages and foods kind of converge here, which is nice for now. But yeah, I'm, uh, I don't know, like I'm one of those people. I, especially once my kids are kind of more grown, I could see myself maybe living overseas again at some point, depending on if a good job opportunity came about. I think my experience in disaster relief and development um, gave me an ability, especially that time of being a kind of liaison with the UN and seeing the different ways different nonprofits work and what what's a good way to do it, what's not a good way to do it. There's a book, When Helping Hurts, that's a really good one if people are involved in any kind of relief and development like that. Because, you know, some of us could have sort of more of these white savior type approaches, which are not helpful. And it's not always white savior. It might be Chinese savior or something. I mean, it might be various forms of it. But like when we go into another culture, having cultural humility is really work that we have to personally do, that we don't bring in our... American or our British or Australian or, you know, Singaporean ways and assume we know everything, but going in with a lot of humility, which I would say I learned growing up from watching how my parents did that. And then just being with so many different friends from around the world and just realizing no one culture is just the absolute best. No one country is the absolute best. And uh, carrying that kind of cultural humility is really important. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't live overseas at some point again, live abroad. It's a, it's an enriching experience. And I encourage anyone who has an opportunity to do that. Um, but even if you don't, I encourage people with whatever budget you have to travel, because I would say travel has really enriched my life quite a bit. And so in our family budget, we definitely prioritize travel. And we, I've learned how to be quite frugal at it. Highly recommend if you go to Europe, Rick Steves, everything Rick Steves. <laughs> you can even check his books out from the library, but we've gone to a lot of his picnic spots. There's one in Paris that was a favorite of ours and a little street where you can buy your cheese and your meat and your baguettes. And at the end of the street, you can sit there and look at Notre Dame. So Rick Steves, for sure, if you're trying to do, and we do his audio tours. We just went to Scotland for our 25th wedding anniversary and 
see pictures of us with our AirPods in, it's because we did the free Rick Steves audio tour, which we often do on the Royal Mile next to Edinburgh Castle. So yeah, I think that travel living abroad has really given me a lot of diversity of perspective, a lot of humility, a lot of skills on how to work in a global company of any kind or an organization that has and values diversity. My time abroad has really helped me learn that just by osmosis, which I'm really grateful for. Right. So what would you say for someone who maybe hasn't had as many cultural experiences as you have to like learn cultural humility? Yes, it's it's just a lot of internal work that we have to do. And one of the best ways I would say is to just read books by or watch movies about or maybe listen to podcasts by people who are really different from you. And I I think a lot of us have been raised to be in an echo chamber, whatever culture we're in. I, I mean, I saw this happen even with some of my best Singaporean friends that they had to fight against as well, where in Crazy Rich Asians, if you look, watch that movie, which I, once again, I, I think is great. My family loves that movie, but watching it in Singapore with our Singaporean friends too, they, it's very much the Chinese perspective on life in Singapore. It's also the, the perspective of the upper crust, right? So it's a Singaporean who wrote the book and he's from that upper crust of Singaporean Chinese life, but there's no Malay people in that movie. I think there's a couple of Sikh guards at one point in one of the homes and they have a little silly scene, which is fun. But for the most part, you're seeing that through the lens of a very wealthy Chinese Singaporean. And there are many people like that. And there are my friends and they're wonderful people. And, you know, that is one perspective. But if that's what you thought all Singaporeans were like, then you would have missed it. So any of us, wherever we're raised, we have to be very intentional about realizing we have a lens whatever that lens is and just learn to name it. Like what's your lens? You know, my lens is, um, a white girl raised bilingual in Venezuela who went to international school and then lived in Indonesia and learned that in Malay. And like, I see it through those lenses and I've had white privilege wherever I've gone, even if I've been a minority most of my life. And there's still been a privilege with that because I was an expat living abroad and I wasn't, um, you know, I went to church growing up with some people who are still my dear friends and have, taught me a lot about faith and suffering in a lot of difficult circumstances, such as the Chavez years and now the Maduro years that Venezuela has lived under, which were very different from the years I grew up in Venezuela. But even in the years I grew up, the churches that I was involved in, which were mostly really small churches in a largely Catholic nation where Protestant churches were certainly the minority for sure. But even in those churches, most of it was in, you know, not the wealthy part of town. (laughs) So um, I had Sunday school under the mango tree with my little friend, Daisy, and we were 12 and she died of malnutrition. And that's one of those markers in my life that just gave me a lens on what it means to be malnourished. Like I'll never read or research about being malnourished or work in international development in a way that I don't see that about my friend, you know, and she was very sweet. The last I saw her, she was in a hospital bed, just wasting away. And a lot of it is the lack of education and opportunities her family had with 12 children and she was the oldest and her dad was in and out of work for various reasons. And when they would get, he would get a job. Sometimes the choices he would make for buying food for them were what made them happy, but not really what nourished them because of just a lot of lack of education around nutrition that he didn't really have. And so, um, he loved his kids 
but ultimately you see things like that. And so I think pouring yourself into the stories and lives of others, whether it's through books or movies where your people aren't centered in the story. So if you're a man listening to women and if you're a white person listening to BIPOC and their stories and people from different nations too, because really it's something we can all do if you have a library card um, or listen to free podcasts. So I definitely recommend that. I would say even for me, I was raised to, I think most of us are, to prefer male voices, whether we're conscious or not. You know, even in podcasting, I have a lot of female podcast friends and it's a pretty special community where we try to support each other. But I think the statistic is right at maybe 15% of podcast hosts are women, which is always surprising to me because they say we talk so much. It's like, how are we not dominating the podcast space, right? <laughs> like that should be the one thing that's just a guarantee, but even that. So I've had to be intentional about reading books a few years ago by women because I, you know, even in my master's degree, most of my textbooks were written by white men. It's just how it was in the 90s. And so listening to or reading books um, rather by BIPOC and women especially has been really important to me. So I, I like to read well, you know, a lot of theology books. So my lens on the Bible, even though I speak six languages and I've read the Bible in multiple languages. And of course, English has many translations of the Bible. Even so, reading theologians who are mujerista theologians, which are Latina theologians, and then also womanist theologians who are African female theologians have really helped open stories of the Bible up to me in new ways. So the story of Hagar, for example, seeing it through the lens of a womanist theologian just gave me different nuance that I hadn't noticed before. So I think that reading people who have a different perspective is, is if you're a reader or you like audiobooks is is a great way to start if you can't travel but if you can please travel <laughs> and so you've mentioned how important religion is to you so at any point was keeping your faith in these various different countries difficult for you yeah i'd say there was a moment in the tsunami when my husband and I, and we had a baby at the time, our firstborn, he was not even a year old. And my good Ajani's friend lost her baby and a lot of babies were lost. And her baby was a few months older than ours. And I think her baby's about 15 months old. And it was just, it was hard. It was like, wow, how can this be? You know, how can this, what is going on? And my husband and I kind of had a conversation that really will always remember, which is, I don't know if God doesn't do something great out of this, you know, I just don't know if our faith can handle it. We just kind of, my husband said the words, but I kind of felt it, you know, too. And then over time we did see some pretty great things come out of it. It doesn't I mean we don't still have questions. I still do have a lot of questions as to why those things happen. I mean, I know that for sure we're not taking care of the planet the ways that we should. That's pretty obvious. Climate change is horrible. It's not going the right direction. We're, we're not doing what we should with our governments. We're not making the choices we should make. We're all complicit in a lot of ways, some of us a little, some of us a lot. And so that is sort of a natural consequence of what we're doing and not doing to, to care for our planet the way I believe God commanded us to in the beginning of the scriptures. But seeing, I guess, people come together and it gave us hope of like people from all around the world who could be there to make a difference together, that sort of showed us I think whenever God is love. So whenever you see love exchange between two people or when somebody loves and cares for this 
planet we live on, whether it's the the creation of all forms, you know, the planting trees and caring for animals and all that, like that's an act of love. And, and so that connection between human beings and toward this, this planet we get to live on and then um, any connection with the divine, it all, it all is a similar nature to it, I guess. And so seeing that was a, a real blessing for us and it gave us faith in the small I think a lot of times we want to see these big seismic shifts and these, these huge movements. And sometimes we get to see those, but uh, my understanding by reading the scriptures is faith of a mustard seed could move mountains. That's one of the scriptures that's really special for me. And then, um, Jesus described the kingdom of God, like a, like yeast that makes an entire dough and bread. And so it's like these small things that can bread and be great. And so that was sort of the experience that we saw there was something that seemed to start small and grew through the lives of people. And and then whole communities were starting to be restored over time. So we left five years after the tsunami had happened and had seen a lot of growth and change. Rice fields had been desalinated, homes had been rebuilt. And we had brought in a, a guy from the States who had worked in high-end real estate <laughs> to help with uh, homes that were much more simple to have rainwater harvesting units on top so people could have clean water and rebuilt entire villages in a way that was retrofitted for earthquakes. And so what was built was better than what was there before. And so there was just a lot of hope visually in that. Um, you can never replace a child by having another child. You'll always mourn and grieve the loss of that child. But you could see hope and restoration and resurrection happening. and. Uh, my hope is that's still going on there in multiple ways because of little small things that we got to see and experience ourselves. So, yeah. Great. Now, what is it that you do for your podcast and professionally in life, at least at now at this point? <laughs> right. Yes. Now, what do we do? So I, do, I live in Silicon Valley, I think I mentioned. And so I've been working in business solutions startup all this year, um, client relations and working in leadership development, people who are trying to maybe feel a little bit stuck in life and want to figure out a way to either start a business or need help in knowing how to do that. I've been working in a company with a CEO who um, recruited me and it's been a really great experience all year. Prior to that, prior to working in business and tech startup, I, like I mentioned, I worked in Indonesia for those 20 years or 10 years in Indonesia, 10 years in Singapore. So 20 years in Asia doing international relief and development. And so it was a bit of a switch to suddenly go from nonprofit to business. But really what I've found is a lot of it crosses over. It's sort of, you know how to lead a team to do tsunami relief and set up medical clinics and and do all kinds of crazy things, liaison with the UN and cross-functional teams and volunteers and staff and managing all that. Some of those skills just sort of cross over and because Silicon Valley is such a diverse place, just knowing how to have cultural humility and how to include people as a manager, as a team leader and working in any of those realms in the workplace. I think a lot of those skills are, they really cross over. So I would just say I've learned what it means to be a decent human being to care for my, those that, you know, report to me, care for them as people, but also when you care for them as people, it helps bring out the best in them and they tend to do some of the best work of their lives when they there's that trust built and you care for them as a person and 
when the load seems a little heavy, figuring out ways we can share it better as a team, just being sensitive like that to people are some of the things I learned in Tsunami Relief where we had to take breaks or we would just burn out. Um, and so bringing those skills into business where tech startups are, they have their own level of intensity as well here in Silicon Valley. So some of those skills <laughs> have really crossed over. And so, yeah, that's what I'm doing now. And my podcast, I like to highlight just different voices and um, bring them on so we can learn. I feel like celebrating our differences is something we don't do enough. We're, I mentioned before, there's a lot of common humanity that we all share, but we're all unique and our differences are important and we're not just a cog in a wheel. You know, if you're in a company like that, I hope you find one that's not that way because it's just not a fun way to work. It takes its toll on us, but we're human beings. And, and so I, I love to celebrate that on my podcast. And then also I believe very strongly that, and the statistics are very much there, whether it's in business, nonprofit or, or faith-based work, that the more diversity you have around the table of decision-making, the better your decisions are going to be. And so, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff about trying to get CEOs to be more diverse, you know, how to, more women CEOs, more BIPOC CEOs, but even just around in the C-suite, right? So like, you know, some of the statistics are like at top companies, only 8% of C-suite executives are black. But um, we know that when you have more diversity around the table, the product is going to get sold more widely. The services that you offer are going to be a better match for those who want them. And so, for example, if you don't have women around that table and you want your product sold to women, but you haven't asked them how they experience that product and you don't have somebody at that level speaking into it, it's probably going to not sell very well to them. And so those are just really kind of basic statistics that are pretty much standard at this point. Um, yeah, even things like hiring and, you know, talent acquisition is pretty important to have. So I, I bring people like that on my podcast. I mean, I know people here in the world of women in tech, it's, it's not an easy road, you know, and sometimes even applying for a job, you might get overlooked at times because of stereotypes around women or moms in particular, the motherhood penalty is a big one, but you know, the statistics show that blind applications increase a woman's chances of getting hired by up to 46%, which does indicate that when the application isn't a blind application, women are probably not being given the same opportunities because of a lot of stereotypes that I myself and we all have. So I like to bring women in who talk about what it's like to work in the business world. I have people from different, you know, faith backgrounds that speak into it. So we, you know, get as diverse as we can. It's a fun, it's a fun podcast. I've enjoyed it. I enjoy promoting other people's voices. It's a real favorite thing of mine. So. And so do you find that the people that you work with in the business world are open to cultural humility and being more fair and welcoming? You know, it's definitely a spectrum. It seems as though there's a lot more conversation than there was several years ago. I definitely think it's getting better in a lot of areas. One thing that I have heard a lot and read in quite a bit of the research is that even though we have more women in positions in business, even at C-suite levels, that the way we expect managers and CEOs and senior leadership to lead and be in a meeting and how to talk and interact is still very based on a male stereotype. So even though over the last decade or so, there've been great, uh, great amount of work in terms of increasing that diversity for women um, over and over again, the same 
things that were happening 10 years ago and some of the research out of like Harvard Business Review and different people that have been researching these things, you know, some of the same issues are still coming. So a woman will share an idea in a meeting and not be heard. And then a man will share that same idea and everybody thinks it's a great idea. So in the world of women and the business world, we still have to do some of those things where when a woman shares her opinion and nobody listens, and then a man shares the same opinion later and people say, let's do it. Then often women will tag team for each other and say, oh, that's great because, you know, Amy just shared that idea earlier and I'm so glad you like it too. And not as a way to be snarky, but because our brains just aren't working in ways that are proactive. So just like we need to be anti-racist to go against the racism that we all live and breathe in America and, you know, have carried since pre-enslaved peoples, um, and we have to really actively work against that, we also have to actively work against sexism, which we all carry, I myself included, find myself having sexist opinions sometimes that's, you know, I have to catch myself and correct myself. So being anti-sexist is important. And some of those strategies are really helpful for women in business. And also the whole man interrupting, that's become more of a thing. My, my Gen Zers, they, they're so aware of it. In fact, my 14 year old recently asked me, he was saying something. And then he's like, wait, did I just mansplain you? I mean, he asked me about something he just said. And I said, actually, no, I literally had no idea whatever you were saying about Marvel. It's not mansplaining because I really don't understand Marvel. So please do tell. But the younger generation, Gen Z has been a little more raised with these concepts, which I do find hope in and feel like we've, we've at least done a better job there. And I, I hope we do the work for my daughter, my boys, for this next generation. So they're not having to still face the same problems in meetings where our stereotype of what it means to lead at a high level in a company, in a business or in politics is the way that we stereotypically expect men to show up. Because I think women bring something different and we need those differences in the workplace too. Definitely. Now, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today that I might not know to ask about or some advice? The floor is yours. Hmm. That's, wow. That's such a nice question. <laughs> I would just say, you know, like there's just a lot of uh, stuff going on in the world. I think the last couple of years of COVID have been hard on everyone. And if you have anything additional going on in life, like you're raising a child with a disability or you just got laid off from your job or, you know, you're going through a divorce or you're experiencing domestic violence or a plethora of things, toxic workplaces, you know, that you're dealing with at work. There's just so many things, anything that's a double layer on top of just like pandemic craziness people have been dealing with. It just, it can be a lot. And so, yeah, I I would just encourage people to be kind, be understanding and stand up for people. If you're at a workplace and you see someone being bullied, don't be a bystander because some people may not be able to stand up for themselves because of all those same things. Maybe they're just so broken down. And even though here in California, we have some pretty great laws around protecting people from hostile work environment and harassment at work like that it still takes people to just not be a bystander and watch a bully hurt someone. Um, and that you need to stand up for that person. You know, as a mom, my kids went through those elementary school years and middle school years where they would come home and talk about bullies. And it's, it's hard. I mean, we all remember those years. It's hard to stand up 
and, and speak out for your friend. But those things really do help, especially if somebody's so beaten down by life. Sometimes they're the first person that the bully goes after. So yeah, if you're in a workplace like that, or if it's in your faith-based space where you're at, or just even in the nasty politics and polarization we see in our societies right now around the world or the cyberbullying or whatever, just, yeah, stand up, stand up for people because, um, yeah, there's people in the world that haven't dealt with their trauma in the ways we mentioned earlier in the podcast. And if you don't deal with it and you take it out on others, you really need to stop because people are dealing with a lot of stuff. So that's, that's one thing I would end with maybe as a mama bear and also as somebody who's seen toxic work environments and, and seen people get hurt and know that, you know, it's just when you have an opportunity to be anything, just be kind, just be kind to people. And those are some great words of advice. And I think just kind of even throughout this episode today, like the things you've talked about and how you don't just focus in on one thing or one walk of life, like you can really tell that like you've taken the time to realize how many other people are out there living different lives than your own. And it sounds like you're able to bring that in various facets of your life through work or through your children. So I think that's really great. Thank you. It's been an honor to know so many different types of people. I hope I have many more years to meet many more people, even some of the people listening today. I'd love to meet you in person if you're in the Silicon Valley. So send me a message. (laughs) Well, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask all of my guests a random question that doesn't have to do anything with what we have talked about today. So my question for you is, what is your best hot take? Oh, hot take. Ooh. I'm not a big hot take person, although I am a big social justice person. So you would think those would go together, but I mostly try to be a little more thoughtful and a little more scholarly about my approach with statistics and things like that. But what I say is my best hot take. Hmm. So maybe it's the January 6th stuff. We're just going to get all political, aren't we? So I don't know how your people feel about January 6th. (laughs) And you're in Pennsylvania with all kinds of U.S. history nearby you. But yeah, I had a guy on my podcast a couple weeks ago, Dr. Paul Miller out of Georgetown University. And he's written a great book called um, The Religion of American Greatness um, about the dangers of Christian nationalism. So as a person who's lived in many countries around the world, Venezuela had coup attempts when I was growing up. Um, There were some wild and crazy things in Indonesia after 9-11 where my Muslim friends actually protected me and cared for us, even though Laskar Jihad was trying to sweep us out and all these crazy narratives that you hear. Some of it was true and some of it wasn't true. It's just a lot of nuance that people have. But I think living in the U.S. and seeing the events of January 6th happen as a person who's seen countries taken over and democracy not work the way it's supposed to and horrible, horrible things happen. It was, um, yeah, it was unacceptable. And so to see the January 6th hearing happen a few weeks ago with this one really brave 25 year old whistleblower come out when these like 40, 50, 60 year old men are just staying safe and not saying anything and being bystanders, watching her get bullied. And just to see her bravery at 25, go out there and just, we knew what she was going to face. But yeah, I just think we owe a lot of respect and care for people like her. And then others followed. 
women whistleblowers just, they really get hit hard. We do not like, we don't prefer women's voices, but we, we, we really don't like it when they call us on our crap. So seeing that happen was disappointing, but it's also encouraging. I have a lot of faith in this younger generation to stand up and do the right thing. So that's my hot take. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I'll be leaving a link for Lori in the description to her website, which will bring you to all of her social media and all of the good things. So feel free to go connect with her on LinkedIn and various other sites. And if you'd like to check out her podcast, it is a world of difference. So that'll be there as well, along with the other things that she mentioned throughout this episode that are good resources, the various books, movies, things like that. All of that will be in the description for your perusing. And if you would like to connect with the podcast here, our website is in the description as well. That brings you to all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So feel free to go connect with those pages. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description as well. That is always appreciate, appreciated. And my email is in the description. Of course, if you would like to connect with me and be a guest on the show, I would love to hear from you. So thank you so much, Lori, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.